I'm Regina Beach, and you're listening to Saturn Returns, a podcast about life changes, events, and challenges with a clear before and after. This week, you'll hear from my former colleague and friend, Kate Esposito, as she talks about her career in education, love of improv comedy, and thoughts on mental health. We spoke in her apartment in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Will you start by introducing yourself? I am Kate Esposito. I'm an educator. I'm a cat mom, reader. I live in Philadelphia. I'm in my early 30s. Tell me about your kitty. She's sitting on my leg. Yeah, she's fabulous. She's one of the chillest cats I've ever encountered. She has a lot of health problems right now, but we're working on those. She's my little friend. She's been with me in Chicago and then went to Boston and is now here in Philly, so she travels as much as I do. She's named Minerva after Minerva McGonagall in Harry Potter, which is one of my favorite book series and thought was appropriate since McGonagall turns into a cat. You love reading. You taught English and literature for a long time. Tell me about your love of books and maybe give me some favorites that you've read. As far back as I can remember, books were a part of life in my family. Um, Something we'd do on weekends. My parents took me to the bookstore often, to the library often. One of the things I still to this day appreciate the most about books is that they are a way for you to have parts of yourself acknowledged, seen, represented in a way that isn't always possible or isn't always apparent in real life. That was what made books so important to me, especially when I was a teenager and going through all the like, I'm so misunderstood stuff. Books gave me a way to feel like my experiences were valid. And I still feel like that very much to this day, but I also even more so enjoy the like learning experience from books and also the exploration of other types of human life. Um, I've branched out much more in my adult life into reading things that are about people much more different from me um, than I did when I was a kid. I'm a very like eclectic reader. I actually just read an article recently about this like very judgmental article about adults reading uh, YA fiction, how like it means that they don't want to grow up and they're stuck in their like youth and that that's like a bad thing. And I fully am in support of a nutritional diet, like a wide variety of things that you read. I don't think anyone should read just YA, but I've found a lot of great YA literature from like teaching high school students and just exploring on my own and finding different things. And I think that whether it's YA or fantasy or pop fiction or whatever, if you're reading, like who cares what it is? There's something that I've always disliked about a a lot of adult literature that it's unnecessarily morose sometimes that like authors gravitate towards like failing marriages and people who are dealing with like serious mental health issues and, and those things should be explored. But I have a different job sometimes and sometimes I want my literature to be fluffy and light and fun and have a happy ending. Uh, I'm staring at my bookshelf over there and seeing uh, Stephen King who I love. I think he's super fun and I love fantasy. His Dark Materials series is one of my favorites. The Golden Compass and the two sequels. I think it's just I love how creative authors can be in building a new world. You started your career teaching in post-Katrina New Orleans, Louisiana. What was that like for you? Yeah, it was really interesting to be down there. I went down in 2008, which was three years post-Katrina. Where I was teaching was not so much affected. I was teaching about 40 minutes outside of New Orleans. Um, And New Orleans is really the area that faced the brunt of the damage from the hurricane. 
So the community I was working in, very small, very, very small. It was the school and there was a gas station across the street and then miles and miles and miles of sugarcane fields and swamps. And that was it. There was damage from the hurricane, but just not as much. So I didn't see it so much in my education career, but I did see it within the city because I lived in New Orleans. And by the time I got down there, there was a lot of revitalization already happening. A lot of groups had come in, volunteer work had been done, foundations. Brad Pitt had built a bunch of houses out in the Ninth Ward. And so it was coming back, but I did get to speak to a lot of people who'd been there during the hurricane and heard a lot about what it was like. And more than damage, just emptiness in a lot of areas because the the rubble and the damaged houses and everything had been removed. And so it was just sort of empty. And you could feel that within the city a bit, that there was this sort of hole that had yet to be fully filled um, from everything that had happened. And there were still FEMA trailers up even three years later and a lot of like just unhappiness and anger and dissatisfaction about how things had been handled. And the one story that I remember hearing from a friend of mine, he stayed during the hurricane or he, I don't know if he stayed or if he came back like fairly soon after. And he talked about being there and how quiet it was all the time because there was no electricity on, there were no cars running. It was just quiet. You know, I've read a lot about the hurricane. I've talked to a lot of people and that image sticks out to me because it has this like contrast of sounding both very peaceful and very kind of haunting. So yeah, New Orleans is an incredible city. I love it very much. You know, I have a tattoo on my wrist that's the fleur-de-lis, which is kind of the unofficial symbol of the city. And it will always have been a very impactful experience in my life to have been there and, and met so many people. What made you leave Louisiana and come up to Illinois? So I worked for a public school that had a three-person science department, which I was a part of. The other two teachers had been there 10, 15 years, and I had been there for two, and they cut one of the science positions. So seniority-wise, I was cut. So I was looking for another job and had thought about Chicago. I'd gone up for a summer to do improv classes and really, really loved Chicago and just sort of on a whim said, oh, I'm going to throw in my application. Probably won't work out. It's kind of an inconvenient time to move up there, but let me see what happens. I was deep in the process of applying to a few schools in New Orleans, but nothing was really working. I flew up to Chicago, got interviewed and got the position and it just all sort of fell into place from there. I knew I didn't want to be in New Orleans forever, not because it's not an incredible city, but just I grew up wanting to live in New York City and wanted something bigger. Moved up to Chicago. It was the right job at the right time. You have a yes and tattoo and I know that improv is a huge part of your social life. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to you? So I was always a theater kid in high school. Um, I still love theater and acting. And when I got to college, I joined a theater club at my university that had an improv kind of offshoot. And I stayed one day to watch this improv group and found it so entertaining and fun and really akin to the way people play when they're children. Play behavior that we lose often when we become adults. Also sat in the back of the room and thought, nope, I'm never going to do that. That's too scary. I can't. But felt... It was the type of fear where I also felt like, oh, if I did this, it might be really good for me. So I kept going, eventually got kind of pulled up on stage. The group was really welcoming and encouraging, and I just started little by little. And then really found my people in college through improv, just other people who were optimistic and joyful and fun and lighthearted and also just like interesting and from many different backgrounds. And so I really gravitated to the improv community for that reason. And then when I went to New Orleans, I joined a group there and again, found people that I really connected with. And my move to Chicago was not entirely unconnected to the improv scene. Um, I really wanted to take more classes and see if it was something I could take a little bit more seriously. So I did. 
uh, took classes at Second City and IO, which used to be called Improv Olympic, which are two of the biggest theaters there. And to be honest, I found the improv community in Chicago to be pretty competitive. And there was some kind of, there was some ugliness within it because people were trying to make it and it became a little bit cutthroat and that sort of community element fell apart in some ways. But I did still find people that I really connected with and I learned a lot. I learned a lot about my own life through doing it. I started to notice that just like in improv scenes, I would be scared and standing off to the side and too afraid to just enter the scene and do something. And I would stand to the side and just think about it instead of participating. And I started to realize I was doing that in my own life. I've always also appreciated that you can notice a lot of patterns of your behavior and habits on stage or the things you're afraid to do on stage are not in a bubble. They're not in a void. They're parts of you. I think what a fun way to to like have some sort of therapy or like learn about yourself to do it on stage through play. And I, I've gotten a lot of it of improv and that's why I tattooed it to my wrist because I feel like the idea of yes and like don't stand on the side thinking, don't stand off like not participating, just get in there, do something and just go with it and see what happens. And that's a lot better than overthinking and being scared. You introduced me to a really interesting group in Chicago through Fear Experiment. Can you talk a little bit about that, about Mac and Cheese Productions and what that meant to you and your Chicago experience? I had taken an improv class um, and met someone through that class who had done this thing called Fear Experiment. And I was really searching for a community in Chicago. I had just gone through this really crappy experience wherein I had inadvertently lost every friend I had made in my first year in Chicago and so I was really looking to like rebuild my community and find new friends and when I was talking to this woman about fear experiment it just sounded like the perfect thing fear experiment was a class I think the best thing I've ever heard it referred to is like an adult recital for three months you practice an art form that you have little experience in or haven't done for a very long time and you then do a performance in front of up to 700 people in this big auditorium I learned how to step which initially I wondered if that was like Irish step dancing, but it was not. It was a type of step that is traditionally done in historically black fraternities and sororities. Um, Really, really fantastic and fun to do. Very like rhythmic and yeah, just it had such a blast doing it. It was really uh, enjoyable to learn and something very different than anything I'd ever done before. Met a lot of really great people doing it and I had no issue with being on stage. I've always liked being on stage. But for me, there were fears around like, will I be accepted by the group? Will I like, you know, can I ask people to purchase tickets from me? Because I have these hangups about like not wanting to be a burden on others and not wanting to ask people for things. And so it helped me kind of face some of those. And I liked the overarching idea of fear experiment in like facing your fears. When I'm afraid of things that maybe don't have a legitimate reason, like I'm afraid to travel to a new place by myself or I'm afraid to like talk to this person or I'm afraid to take this risk my tendency or the thing I push myself to do is to like jump into that and face that fear as much as I can Um, because I think that's where real growth comes from when we're afraid of those type of things it's like a a beacon to something that's we're trying to work through Um, and so I think jumping into those fears and pushing ourselves past them is how like real growth comes you invited me to see you do the step performance and I was so inspired that I joined fear experiment and I did dance and also conquered some fears that way I think it's really impactful to get up as an adult and do something new and you did that in a huge way when you left Chicago to go teach English in China which is a place you had never been can you talk about your experience there 
Yeah, uh, I have this tendency to like find a new and exciting idea and just kind of roll with it. like I think fly by the seat of my pants is kind of a phrase that stuck with me throughout my life. Like when I applied for the job in Chicago, it was sort of on a whim. I had thought about previously wanting to move abroad. I had gone to Europe the summer prior to applying to the job in China. It was the first time I'd ever gone abroad and I just had such a blast. Um, I spent three weeks traveling on my own. I saw most of the UK and Paris and just thought like, gosh, I've seen none of the world. I want to see more of it. And so I started looking into teaching abroad and China just had a, a tremendous number of opportunities. They're really seeking a lot of foreign teachers to come over and um, help students improve their English skills and this sort of focus on globalization and the uh, the necessity of being able to speak English um, to be able to participate in the rest of the world. And something that I think it's a shame that Americans don't have a similar perspective on language learning because it's so useful as I learned when I lived in China and not, did not speak Chinese. And it was I learned how to pantomime really well, but it was challenging. And so, yeah, I applied for a job and like a couple weeks later had the job and was moving to China and it was all kind of a whirlwind. Like with the fear piece, it was scary, but it was also something that I knew would push me and help me grow. And it felt like a safe risk in a way because I was going with a, a school and they were going to help take care of a lot of the like paperwork and the visa and all of these things. And I would have a network already there for me when I got there. So yeah, and it ended up being a, an incredible experience. I learned a lot. I traveled a lot. I met a lot of fantastic people. I saw a lot of ways that people lived their lives that differed from the traditional track of, you know, go to college, get married, buy a house, have kids, just different style of living. And I really appreciated seeing that variety and seeing that there's not just one way to live a life. Getting to meet people with different ideas and cultures and backgrounds and, and finding, like still finding the connection with, within all of that. I think that was really pretty amazing as well. So you taught high school science and then you taught high school, English, then you moved to China. Now you're back in the States working as a counselor with low-income youth. What is educational equity? Why has that been such a big part of your career? The high school I attended was a public high school in New Haven, Connecticut. When I tell people I'm from Connecticut, they often assume that I grew up in some sort of McMansion and had lots of money and like a pool and horses and I had none of those things. You know, I did. I grew up with means. I was in a middle class family and certainly never wanted for much, but I still lived in a city and I had a social circle of people from all different types of families. I had friends that were much wealthier than I was and I had a lot of friends who did not have as much as my family did. I knew when I went to high school that I wanted to attend a public high school. My parents gave me the option to go to a private Catholic school and I wasn't interested in that because to me it was too much of a homogenous environment. It was all female. It was mostly all white. And everybody was presumably Catholic or at least willing to go to a Catholic school. And I wanted to be surrounded by lots of different types of people from lots of different backgrounds. So I went to the public high school and the courses that I was allowed to take were strong honors classes, AP classes. I was placed in the strongest classes at that school. I also witnessed friends that I met through my volleyball and basketball teams or through the theater program who were placed in classes that were poorly managed, the newest and most inexperienced teachers, unqualified teachers, long-term substitutes teachers just like really not given the best chance of getting a strong education and also not tracked into any sort of college path and I watched this and didn't fully grasp at the time like why that was not being given as an option honestly didn't think about it much until I got to my senior year of college I had a psychology major which I loved but I had no 
idea what I was going to do with that. Didn't want to go to grad school for psych. And so spring semester senior year, I had no plans for a job after college. I was kind of hoping that I could just stay in college forever, I think. And I got approached by a Teach for America recruiter who asked to sit down and meet. And as soon as we started talking, this guy asked about my high school experience. And I started talking about these things I had seen as far as friends being tracked early, not being pushed to college, being assumed that because they had started in like a lower level math class that they were incapable of moving up. Like just all of these things came out and I started to realize like, oh, I'm actually really not okay with this. I'm actually really interested in helping to like rectify this in any way that I, any small influence I can provide because that shouldn't happen. And so I ended up joining Teach for America and and got placed in New Orleans and had never been there. And it was, I had a moment of, my God, I don't know if I can do this, but did it anyway. And it was really hard. My first year of teaching, I say frequently that I don't think you could pay me enough to do it again. It was very, very hard. And I look back and I I do wonder whether it's the best thing for kids to have a teacher that inexperienced because I know I was not good those first few years. But I did care a lot and I did try as hard as I could and grew a lot. And so I like to hope that that did something at least. But other than my conflicted feelings on Teach for America, I do have a deep passion for trying to improve the education system in our country. Through all of this experience, have come to realize that I think education is the key to a better society. I think if we're going to change any of the things that we are hoping desperately to change, to improve things for the people that we know are not living in situations that are where they're like being given all of their human rights that they deserve, I think that education is a place where we start that. And whether it be education in the formal sense or education in the sense of like having conversations and challenging thinking and pushing the boundaries of what currently exists, it all comes back to education. So this current job that I have working as a counselor, I work in Camden, New Jersey, and it has come even more starkly into view the gaps that exist in terms of what is available for kids based on where they happen to be born um, and what family they happen to be born into. If you happen to be born in certain cities, certain areas of the country, you just don't have access to the things that other kids have access to. And the fact that our country bases school funding on the level of income of that community, the level of taxes that they can take from that particular community, I think is grossly unfair. That people who, you know, on the whole communities that make less money and can afford less, then also have less in terms of funding for their education is just a situation the system that perpetuates inequity and it sets communities up for failure and or to continue to have less than other communities are able to have and it's a massive problem it's a very very complicated problem that I don't think has an easy or short-term solution but something that I very much believe in trying to do something about it in any small way. You work with a lot of young people. What are the things you notice about the next generation? They are, I mean, they're great. They are perceptive and smart and what is happening in their communities and in their schools. And I mean, they see what's going on. I remember my dad saying that to me a long time ago, that if you want to know how a school is doing, or you want to know about how things are going, ask kids, because they will be brutally honest with you. And I think that that is true. I mean, I've had many conversations with students this year who are very aware of the things that are happening in our country right now, the decisions that lawmakers are making, and how those things are affecting them, and how unjust (laughs) Uh, those decisions are and the fact that like the people in power are not always aware of how these things are affecting you know the the 
regular everyday people of their country they're the kids i work with are also you know like they're obsessed with social media and they all are on their phones all the time and there are those pieces that are very interesting i don't i wouldn't jump to the sort of typical response of like oh my god this is a terrible thing and you know kids these days and any of that nonsense but i do think it's interesting to consider what the repercussions of those things will be and whether it's affecting social development or if our you know social structure will change based on those pieces the majority of my students communicate via you know social media platforms so i think that's really really interesting and to some degree they're you know typical kids you know same as a lot of kids i went to high school with same as a lot of students i've taught over the last 10 years i think there's something really interesting about the fact that every year I've taught and including, you know, I consider a similar idea now because I have a specific caseload of students that I was just sort of handed. But regardless, as soon as students became, become my responsibility, whether they're in my classroom or on my caseload, there is this protectiveness and ownership that you sort of feel over them. And I know many other teachers who feel the same way that you, they are then your students, they are your kids, they are your, your group. Uh, and I think that's a pretty amazing part of education and amazing part of who educators are and I really that was a piece I wasn't expecting it's hard it's hard to think about my students and not think about that piece because you really do feel this instant sort of like ownership over them in the sense that like you are responsible for making sure that they I don't know have what they need and do as well as they can and I don't have kids I'm not a parent but I'd imagine it's like a small little tiny piece of what it feels like to be a parent that you just like want so much and you see so much potential and do you have an experience in your life that feels like a defining moment where there was like a before and an after where you changed in some way? I think the one that most readily comes to mind is I started seeing a therapist when I was in high school, my senior year. I was really struggling um, with what I now know was like depression um, and anxiety. And I didn't really know what it was at the time. I just knew I was unhappy for reasons that seemed unclear and undefined and started seeing a therapist and then stopped kind of towards the end of college and picked up again with a therapist when I was in New Orleans because this all that kind of depression stuff cropped back up. I remember very vividly, you know, I'd been seeing her for several months and, and just like still continued to feel really dissatisfied and like I don't really I've heard depression described in so many different ways and I think that I mean given my love of the series one of the ways that I find like most relevant and that I think makes the most sense is like the J.K. Rowling's uh, creation of the Dementors and Harry Potter and that it's this like you feel like this fog and this gloom and this like cold just like lingers over you um this sort of you know it can be sunny outside and you still feel like it's like a rainy terrible day and like you don't know why I think that's just like a brilliant description of or interpretation of what that feeling is like and and I couldn't figure it out and I couldn't figure it out and I couldn't figure it out and then one day I'd kept journals on and off throughout my life and one day I just started writing in my journal all the things I didn't like about myself and I as soon as I started writing I couldn't stop and it was just like a page and a half two page long list of all these things I hated about myself and I stepped back and I looked at the list and I thought oh my god this isn't normal like this is not healthy this is not normal this is I mean I think it's more normal than I realized it was but this is almost like abuse it was mental abuse that I was doing to myself and I 
until I put it on paper and looked at it in front of me, didn't realize how much I was like berating myself in my head for not being whatever it was that I wasn't being. Not a good enough teacher, not a good enough friend, not a good enough person, not exercising enough, not eating healthy enough. Just like the list went on and on and on. And I think as soon as I saw that on paper, it sort of clicked in my head in a way that it had never before. And I really started to work on that and still struggle with it, to be honest, all these years later but have worked a lot with the therapist I had then and then the one I subsequently saw in Chicago and am, if anything, much more aware of when I do that now, which is one of the hardest things is to just be aware of when you're doing that to yourself. And secondary realization that came later is that, you know, I struggled with recognizing that voice in my head and then I struggled to to shut it up. That was hard because it it feels like it's telling you the truth. This voice, this judgmental voice feels it's coming from your own head and you feel like, hey, this must be true because my head is saying it. This sort of secondary realization came later when I was living in Chicago and my therapist asked me, if you had a student who was saying this about themselves, what would you say to them? And immediately I thought, oh my God, I would never say these things to them. I never tell them that they were not good enough or like yell at them for, you know, whatever they had forgotten to do. I, I would try to help them if they were eating really unhealthy junk all the time, I wouldn't say like, oh, it's okay, don't worry about it. But I certainly wouldn't say like, oh, you're a terrible person and how could you? And these awful things that I was finding acceptable to tell myself. So sort of developed this, and I'm continuing to develop this ongoing compassion for the fearful child within who is just like trying to do the best she can and is struggling and flawed and, you know, just dealing with life like everybody else does. And that has been a tremendously helpful process. Kate, thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else that you want to add? Thinking back on all of the things I've talked about, I've mentioned several times versions of like needing to recognize ourselves and others and needing to see similar experiences to our own and have those levels of connection with other humans. If anything, ending on like what I'm what I'm thinking as I move forward into whatever comes next is like really I recognize the value of um, representation in media and books and television shows and movies and podcasts and and, you know like just like so hearing so many different versions of people's lives and hearing from so many different types of people from so many different backgrounds is so valuable in that I can think of so many times in my life where I consumed some sort of media and recognize myself in another and how powerful that experience is so I can only hope that if anyone's listening to this that maybe they recognize a piece of themselves and things I've said and pass that on spread that spread that around um, and sharing stories that are maybe a little painful or vulnerable or embarrassing but ultimately lead to that greater connection and uh, understanding among people I don't know that's kind of a big ask now that I'm saying it out loud I feel like but uh yeah I just that's why I like to share stories from my life because I know how valuable it's been to me to hear other people's stories I'm Regina Beach and you've been listening to Saturn Returns thanks to Kate for sharing her story and thanks to you for listening If you like what you hear, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or at reginagbeach.com. Click on the link for Saturn Returns. You can also like and comment on the show at facebook.com slash Saturn Returns Podcast. See you next time.